Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, May 23rd, the Thirst Correspondent Edition. I'm Christina Codrucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. Hi, I'm Nicole Perkins, a writer and co-host of Thirst 8 Kit. And I'm Marcia Chatlin, a history professor at Georgetown University. So this week, we have a special guest. We are going to talk to Josh Levine, who's my very own Slate editor. He's got a new book out about Linda Taylor, the con artist who inspired the vicious stereotype and myth of the so-called welfare queen. That book is called The Queen. It's out this week. Then we'll talk about the romanticizing of women's bodies versus the medical condition of pregnancy with regard to both the way Republican legislators have been talking about abortion rights and the fact that professional athletes often lose their income from endorsement deals when they get pregnant. And finally, we're going to review the new Netflix movie, Wine Country, and talk about what one writer has called mom gene movies, films about women over 45 having fun with their friends. And Marsha, what are we doing for our Slate Plus segment this week? So for this week, the question is, is it sexist how Game of Thrones decided to render its female characters in its final season? And here's a little snippet of that discussion. Okay, is it sexist? Game of Thrones aired its series finale on HBO on Sunday, and a lot of fans were disappointed and actually had been disappointed for, you know, this whole final season about the way women were treated on the show. A lot of people believed that the writers and the producers had kind of set up the last season for a victory for female leadership. The women on the show, starting around season four, I would say, had really become the engines of the show's humanity and most interesting plot lines. And they were really seen as sort of the possible righteous future of Westeros and also the most evil characters. So there are spoilers here. Beware if you haven't watched the finale yet. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you should be. You can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right. The Queen is a new book. It just came out this week. It tells the story of Linda Taylor, a con artist who had a moment of fame in Chicago in the 1970s. She kidnapped children. The book alleges that she was responsible for more than one person's death. But her legacy owes to a much lesser crime, welfare fraud. Taylor was the original figure behind the racist stereotype of the welfare queen, which gained steam during Ronald Reagan's presidential campaigns, but went on to inform the way Bill Clinton and other Democrats approached social safety net programs. Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, has spent years working on this book about Taylor It actually originated with his Slate piece in 2013, and we are very happy to have him on The Waves this week. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the nice introduction, Christina. (laughs) So what was it about Linda Taylor's story that compelled you to spend 
what was it, six, seven years reporting about her? Who's counting, really, once you get up to <laughs> six or seven years uh, working on a book? When I first became aware of her story, I was really surprised to learn that there was an individual figure who had been the template for the welfare queen stereotype. I was very aware of and familiar with the stereotype, this idea of like the Cadillac driving welfare queen. But I didn't know that there had been literally a person who the stereotype had been built to embody. And once I learned that, and once I started reading a little bit, and there wasn't that much publicly available about her, um, the record was just, you know, very kind of sparse, and there were a huge number of gaps in it. And there were certain things that just weren't known about her. I just kind of became obsessed with learning about who this, this person was, because she was totally forgotten and erased from history. How much was known about Linda Taylor when you started writing about her? And how much did you sort of uncover organically along the way? So she was famous and known for a very brief period of time from about 1974 when she was arrested for welfare fraud through 1978 when she went to prison after being convicted of fraud. And the things that were known about her were basically all wrapped up around what she wore, how she looked, what she drove, and what she had allegedly stolen from the government in terms of benefit checks. Everything else about her, her past, even really her present, in terms of who she was beyond that image, was kind of suggested at and hinted at, but none of the information was solid. And so in order to uncover that, I had to interview people who knew her, relatives, people that she had come into contact with, court documents, freedom of information requests to various agencies that she'd interacted with. So yeah, it was a lot of excavation. And the the character of Linda Taylor as America knew her, I mean, she wasn't even really known as a real person. It was just this sort of two-dimensional facsimile that was pretty much centered on, you know, like you said, her fur coats, the fact that she had all these cars. Um, but if you were to describe the actual person of Linda Taylor, I imagine you wouldn't center those facets of her being. How would you, now that you've completed this book, describe who Linda Taylor was and what she did? Yeah, so the story, there, there's some like needle threading here because it's undeniable that she did horrible things, that she abused people. As you said in your introduction, she was a kidnapper. She was possibly very likely a murderer, but um, she was also abused and victimized herself. She grew up in the Jim Crow South. She was born in the 1920s, and she was essentially exiled from her own family due to her race. She was denied an education. She was you know, put in positions where she was forced to, to pass for white. Um, she got married in California in 1948 when interracial marriage was illegal. She was put into situations where kind of she herself was seen as illegal, not just the acts that she committed. And that had to have had a profound effect on her, not to excuse the fact that she 
did these these terrible things, but I think it's crucial to understanding who she was. And I was, think, able to provide a more rounded picture. And also, you know, one of the key key takeaways from the book is that the extraordinary things that she did and the way that they were used to implicate more typical welfare recipients is just terrific that that that, that was done. And it's a thing that we do in, a, in our history, you know, so often is take these individual cases and extrapolate from them in ways that are really damaging if you care about the truth and if you care about vulnerable people. Josh, I absolutely adored this book. I actually had Thank taught so the article from Slate in my history classes to talk about investigative journalism and archives and kind of how it takes time to go deep into a story. And the way that bureaucracy shapes the lives of the vulnerable and all yeah. of these processes that she's in, whether she's being arrested, whether she's being evaluated for aid, whether she's um, you know, going to public hospitals. It's like they're all of the records that you find are all about having to determine what her race is, um, put her in kind of a place. And, you know, she's evading this process over and over again. And so I was just curious in terms of the kind of work to do a story so deep and so layered and nuanced, what are the things that you had to kind of learn or familiarize yourself with before you wrote this book? Well, thank you for teaching the, the article in your classes. That's great. Um, and in order to really get at who she was and, and find a lot of this information that was hidden, you kind of have to use all of the different tools in your journalistic toolkit. There are certain things I wouldn't have been able to figure out without um, kind of human connection, without talking to people who knew, who knew her personally, because forms can lie. Like that's a thing that I didn't necessarily appreciate until I started doing this project that what's recorded on an official public document can be biased, can be inaccurate, and you can't necessarily look to any one thing to inform you or tell you the truth. Like, you know, in the census in 1930 and 1940 in Arkansas, she was marked as white. And you have to understand that at that time, it was illegal for there to be a mixed race household, essentially. And if a woman, a white woman gave birth to a mixed race child in Arkansas, in that period, she would have committed a felony, like the child was proof that she committed a felony. And so you kind of have to understand what marking someone as white on that form means. One of the first times that I heard about the welfare queen as a stereotype was through the Patricia Hill Collins book, Black Feminist Thought, and she was, um, that, which was published in 1990. And she was talking about the literary critic Trudier Harris's examination of the stereotypes of black women. And those things included the mammy, the Jezebel, the welfare queen, etc. Um, and in Black Feminist Thought, Patricia Hill Collins talks about these as being controlling images of black women's narratives. And I wanted to go back to the idea of Ronald Reagan using Linda Taylor's story to project this particular type of image um, using very coded language, obviously, because he didn't 
mention her race, but it seems like everyone immediately knew, well, he's talking about a welfare recipient, therefore it's a black person. So I wonder if you could kind of shine a light or highlight a little bit more about what you think Ronald Reagan's purpose was in coming down so hard on this one particular woman and the need to project that kind of image about what black people were doing with welfare. Yeah, that's a great question. And you make a great point about how at a certain point in American history, welfare, quote unquote, welfare became coded as black, you know, the aid to dependent children program when it was created in the 1930s, the intended recipient at that time was a white widow and who in America in our history is seen as more deserving of societal largesse than a a white widow, right? And then people in that category at a certain point get moved into social security. And so as, as the civil rights movement progresses, as more black women get benefits that had been denied to them that they should have been able to, to receive, then welfare becomes seen as more of a suspect program, which is certainly an extremely racist response and sadly predictable one, I think. And so in the 70s, when a presidential candidate like Ronald Reagan talks about welfare in a campaign speech, the imagined recipient at that point that he's talking about is necessarily, I think, a black woman. And Reagan would have had to have been incredibly naive, and I don't think he was this naive, not to understand what his audience would have imagined there. And I do think that welfare was just saying welfare and talking about welfare at that point was a way to kind of play at and incite racial grievance and kind of keeping your hands clean a little bit without having to talk about race. Like he didn't have to say that Linda Taylor was black because it was understood and that as a politician, you don't want to be implicated in, you know, making a racist appeal. So it's, uh, It was kind of a a clever way to go about it, and it worked for him. Um, At the center of it is a woman and her misdeeds and her ability to to become the focus of people's feelings about black women largely. And at the same time, there are very few women making decisions in this process. So you have presidential candidates, you have police officers, you have journalists, you have a lot of men, particularly a lot of white men, who are making... um, making decisions about a lot of people, this time is the moment where women's power is kind of at that lower level. So you talk about some of the social workers who visit Linda Taylor, some of the clerks in the public aid office. But at the end of the day, you know, women are becoming more and more vulnerable because of the economy and because of discrimination in the workplace. And it's just more and more men weighing in. And so I was just very curious as a kind of a male writer writing about the feminization of poverty. What are some of the things that, you know, kind of some of these insights that you think differently or that have come into your consciousness as a result of writing a book about a woman and the implications for women broadly, particularly black women? Yeah. So in the 1970s, when the Chicago Tribune anointed Linda Taylor, the welfare queen, there were no women editors who were at the paper, which is like insane, but true. And there were no black editors. And so that was a thing that was 
incredibly striking to me and also informative when you think about how could an institution that was considered journalistically one of the best media outlets in the country, um, you know, do 40 plus stories in which they call this woman the welfare queen and, and help turn this kind of pejorative, this insult into like a widespread term. Like how could that have happened? Well, that's how it could, could happen is that, you know, these are white men writing the stories and, and editing the stories. I think that that, you know, you, that, that has to, to be part of the explanation. You know, I didn't get into it um, that much in the book, but one thing that was fascinating to me that I found in my research was the welfare rights movement at that time, which was really focused on getting women, particularly black women who had been historically denied these benefits that, you know, statutorily they were entitled to. That was a predominantly woman-led movement. And as you've noted, the kind of movements that were directed towards taking away benefits from women were led by men. And that is, again, kind of unsurprising, but incredibly telling. It, it was amazing to me reading the book that, considering that America loves a con artist, we love a true crime story, uh, love a good villain, which I think the fact that we've focused so much on this welfare queen stereotype is a testament to that. And yet the actual person of Linda Taylor in all her complexity never really captured America's attention as much as just, you know, the person who received undue welfare benefits, which seems like such a meager crime compared to everything else she did. I mean, why do you think that her her full self was neglected by the American imagination when it seems like it would have been very interesting to a lot of people out here? Yeah, I mean, it's deeply weird, right? Like when I tell people about the story now, when I wrote about it for Slate in 2013, when, you know, I've been talking about the book, people are definitely interested that this woman probably killed people and was a, a kidnapper. Like that is a, that is the thing that is, is interesting, inherently interesting to people. It's really a testament to how powerful the welfare queen image was and is that someone could do the things that the Taylor did and that she was so strongly anchored as the welfare queen that that just didn't matter. And it wasn't for Reagan, for instance. He's not going to say in a campaign rally, this woman stole X amount of welfare money, plus she also killed people. It's like... <laughs> because that makes <laughs> that her seem like, oh, that's the thing that's bad about her, not the fact that she's, you know getting all this money that, or, you know, making up children that she doesn't have or something like that. Right. I mean, it's a weird tightrope to walk where you want to make her crimes in the welfare realm, if you're a journalist or a politician, seem extraordinary, but you want to make it seem like it could also be um, an example of something that other people are doing. And so the more you humanize her, either by making her seem like a human being we should have empathy for or humanize her by making her seem like an extraordinary individual who did things that other people didn't do from like the negative side, the less political utility she has. I wanted to ask about how much did the city of Chicago play uh, a role in what 
she was able to get away with because Chicago has, you know, yeah, it's fairly fraught with corruption throughout its recent history. So I'm wondering if whether she knew it on a conscious level or not, if Linda Taylor was, you know, taking advantage of the upheaval in the city's infrastructure when she started to commit these acts of fraud. I think there's something to that. I mean, her story is a lot of things, but it is a migration story and how she moved from the South first to the West Coast and then up North to Chicago. And there's this kind of recurring thing that happens with her where she keeps moving to places that for Black people and for Black women are supposed to be more free and more equitable. And then the reality is a lot harsher than that. I mean, one of the things that's happening in Chicago in the 60s when she's moving there is just like horrifying housing discrimination that is imposed by, uh, you know, with with violence. And so that's a thing that she has to deal with and that black people in Chicago had to deal with. At the same time, as you note, there's a lot of corrupt institutions there. The journalist who um, wrote about Taylor, who broke her story, won multiple Pulitzer Prizes for exposing corrupt institutions in Chicago. And so, you know, the Department of Public Aid in Illinois was not the most efficiently run, um, best run bureaucracy of all time. And I think there were opportunities there for people to take advantage of that. I think the problem journalistically there came when the Tribune went away from focusing on the problems with that bureaucracy and focusing on, you know, so-called welfare cheats and making it seem like the bigger issue was these individuals who were allegedly lazy and thieves and all of those, those negative stereotypes. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Your book, The Queen, is incredible and it's out this week. Thank you, Christina. And people can listen to The Queen, the podcast as well. You're right. Slate has a, a podcast about your book. Thank you for reminding me. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So U.S. national track champion Alicia Montano was recently featured in a video and an editorial in the New York Times about what it's like to be pregnant and raise a newborn as a professional athlete. Marsha. Tell us what you took away from the piece. So the piece from Alicia Montano in the New York Times focused on the fact that she essentially lost her income and her opportunities through Nike's endorsements because she became pregnant. And what the story revealed is that as a professional athlete, she is in this kind of strange category as an independent contractor. And so some of the protections that she would get if she was a full employee of Nike didn't apply to her. And I think that her piece, in light of recent conversations about these fetal heartbeat laws, really kind of bring us to this moment where we have to think about how we understand pregnancy as 
a human process that isn't necessarily the same as an illness, but requires accommodation? And what does it mean when so many decision makers, whether it's about employee practices or whether it's about access to abortion, don't understand science at all? And so I think one of the things that it what it did was it exposed the way that Nike and other businesses that try to be socially progressive on some issues, how at the end of the day, you're reminded that they are corporations that use these different types of loopholes and leverages to deny women and other people in the workplace um, their rights or some accommodation. And so ultimately, I think this is another example of the ways that there are real consequences for people who make a decision to have children and to parent and the ways that institutions haven't quite caught up to the reality. Yeah. One thing that really struck me about this account was the fact that Montano was lauded for running races while she was pregnant and then and coming back to racing before she was fully recovered. Um, and Nike or ASICS, I forget who she was with at the time, was profiting off of that because she was this incredibly heroic, you know, reaching for her dreams no matter the cost. She was visibly pregnant on the track. You know, people did stories about her. She was the pregnant runner. Um, so these companies are benefiting from the fact that she is forced to, and, and you know, maybe she wanted to, uh, to a certain extent, you know, continue to race while she was pregnant. But uh, they're benefiting from the fact that she's won't make money if she's not running, despite the fact that for many people while they're pregnant or when they're recovering from childbirth, they're unable to, you know, participate in that kind of strenuous physical activity for months at a time. It's this idea that the choice that a person makes has to always be weighed against kind of its impact on the company versus the impact on the person and the family. And hmm. so the idea of a pregnant runner, I think through one lens, it's like, wow, what an amazing devoted athlete. But I'm curious, like you said, Christina, if we would ever interpret that as like, wow, how desperate must this person be? No, I think it kind of all gets down to this idea that you know, women's bodies are so precious and must be protected. And particularly when they're in this pregnant state until they are no longer cost effective, until they are costing someone money, until you they can't bring you the money that you want. And then it becomes just, you know, something that you could just push to the side. It reminds me a little bit of Serena Williams, who was ranked number one. And then when she came back from maternity leave, she was down to like 453, was ranked 453 because there was no provision for maternity leave. There was no possibility of how to deal with rankings when someone leaves for that. So it just seems like the sports world in general has a really difficult time acknowledging that there are athletes who are going to be out for pregnancy. And pregnancy is considered a long-term disability. So if there are exceptions that are made for, you know, a torn ACL or whatever, any other kind of serious um, injury, then some of those precautions and some of those accommodations should also be made for people who become pregnant and have to deal with the things that, happens to, that happen to your body um, during pregnancy. 
Yeah, it's interesting because in the New York Times video, Montano specifically says, stop treating our pregnancies like injuries. And I understand what she means by that. Like, you know, if an athlete was out of commission for a year because they had, you know, like you said, a torn ACL or something like that, they might not expect to be getting their same income from um, whatever athletic wear label they're contracted with. Um, But, you know, if they leave for pregnancy, they should be. But at the same time, I feel like pregnancy should be treated more like an injury or not necessarily an injury, but as something that actually physically impacts what your body is capable of. And it's not just a life choice. Like, I think the way that this is framed, that pregnancy and becoming a parent is framed in a lot of workplace situations is as just an arbitrary choice that somebody is making. And if they make that choice, you know, they should be prepared for the consequences up to and including losing a portion of their income. You know, like, oh, if you decide to have kids, you should factor that cost into your decision. And it puts women in particular at a disadvantage because the men who decide to have children, you know, won't have to take a break from their running careers or whatever. Yeah, I mean, also just looking at reproductive health for athletes is different the changes that happen to women's bodies during their menstrual cycle, particularly if they have different kind of conditions, like women have all kinds of issues and, and things that happen to them during their menstrual cycle, particularly if you have some something like endometriosis or PCOS or anything like that. There are a lot of different things that happen to the body. And while most women know to push through and they can deal with it and they figure out ways to Uh, manage it, I think there should be some sort of recognition that reproductive health also affects athletes. And I I don't know what it could be because I am definitely not an athlete. I was always a book reader and a nerd. (laughs) But I do recognize that that there needs to be better acknowledgement of the changes that happen um, to athletes' bodies that are directly related to the reproductive system in many athletes. When I read this article, it made me think of a few years ago, uh, Sonia Richards Ross wrote a book called Chasing Grace. And she talks about having had an abortion before the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And she said, like, this is a common thing in her experience that her other, you know, other athletes seeking abortion in order to, you know, maintain their position in athletics. And I think that is such an important part of this conversation, especially as we really, you know, people are are really kind of gearing up for another, for a series of fights of the continued battle around reproductive choice that, you know, that there, that abortion is one of the ways that um, women are able to compete um, in athletics. And so I think that this kind of puts this question about athletes as workers and what kind of workers they are mm-hmm. front and center. And I think that it adds another kind of sophisticated layer about how these narratives about abortion access are being played out. Um, again, either one as abortion is something people seek out of deep dis- um, desperation or abortion is something that people seek out because they they may die. But I think part of the problem with that is that Abortion is sought for a number of reasons, and I think women women athletes talking about it is really kind of helpful to broaden that perspective. Yeah, I have been thinking a lot about the sort of 
medical condition of pregnancy and childbirth recently um, after watching the hearing in the Alabama State Senate where legislators were talking about this abortion ban that was passed and that the governor did sign. It's a complete abortion ban, no exceptions for cases of incest or rape. Medical practitioners who provide abortion care could be imprisoned for up to 99 years for performing an abortion. And in this hearing, the one of the bill's major supporters, a guy named Clyde Chambliss, sort of didn't seem to care that he didn't exactly know the specifics of how such a ban would be enforced. Because when you're writing legislation about medical processes, if you're not a doctor, there's going to be a lot of things that come into play that you don't anticipate, such as, you know, if a woman who's pregnant takes abortion medication if she has a medication abortion and takes the two pills required for that treatment and then shows up at a hospital, it will look like she's having a miscarriage because that's what that medication does. So somebody asked this guy, uh, you know, one of the Democrats asked this guy, Clyde Chambliss, like, well, what's going to happen in that situation? And he just sort of shrugged and was like, well, the burden of proof will be on the prosecution. The prosecution. So every woman who miscarries is going to be investigated as a a criminal suspect. I know these things. Like, I know that it doesn't make sense for legislators to be making rules about, to be making blanket rules about people's medical care. But it really drove home to me the fact that this, like, every pregnancy is different. Every body is different. And people who don't know the basic facts about reproduction are making laws about reproduction as if it's something that happens by magic. Right. And it's it's just very frustrating because a lot of these people who are making these legislations, they don't even want to say the word vagina. They don't even want to hear the technical terms or the medical terms for what's happening. They get so uncomfortable at just even hearing the words. So how could they possibly know enough to make these kinds of decisions? Well, one of the strategies that I think is interesting in these hearings that I think people are paying a little bit more attention to is using science as a way of unmasking the real intent of these bills. And I think that one of the ways that activists have just been really helpful in terms of these settings is to, you know, really show how much people don't know. But I think that all of these systems work in tandem, right? So I think we've talked about on this, you know, podcast about the lack of access to really good sex education. And you pair that with the demonization of people in poverty and the people who need the social safety net. And you have like a perfect system that allows for these types of bills to pass, to be signed. And even though they will be litigated in the courts, it really does kind of work together. So, you know, when someone in Ohio is saying an ectopic pregnancy, you can just like take it and put it back in the uterus. And (laughs) you're thinking, this really makes no sense. This kind of works because all of this is a kind of sentimentalizing of women's bodies and of childbirth and of parenthood and not looking at the realities and, and the real complexities of human reproduction. Yeah. So just to bring it back to the athletic lens for a second, I mean, do you think that we should be looking at pregnancy and childbirth through that sort of medical scientific lens more as a strategy to, you know, make people take pregnancy and childbirth seriously in terms of its effect on labor and also that like medical reality as a reason 
as an argument for abortion rights. I mean, also, like, if you're sentencing a woman to carry a pregnancy against her will, you're also forcing her into the pain and discomfort of pregnancy and childbirth. So it's like, you know, a corporal punishment. Hmm. I don't know. Um, And I don't know, because I think that there is some feminist conversation about, you know, suggesting that hypermedicalizing pregnancy has led to, you know, not believing women and forcing them to have babies in hospitals when they want to have babies at home and reducing midwifery as a practice. So there's, Mm. there's this whole kind of argument about why medicalizing pregnancy takes rights away from people who are having babies. But I do think that there has to be some kind of um, nuanced understanding that rights within the workplace don't look the same for all people, but that a functioning workplace can accommodate people who are different in ways to help them kind of meet their basic needs and do the things that they need to do outside of the workplace. So I'm not going to commit to an answer, but I think, (laughs) um, but I think that there's, I think that there's a way of doing that while also being attentive to the complexity of like the stuff people bring into the workplace. Hmm. Nicole? Yeah, I feel, I feel kind of the same where I don't necessarily want to commit because it's so difficult to get the people who make the laws to accept environmental science, right? Yeah. <laughs> to accept the, that the climate is changing and the things that are happening that we have scientific proof of and still it's just kind of, you know, poo-pooed and pushed to the side. So I def- I know if they don't want to believe what's happening to the earth, they definitely don't want to believe what's happening to people's bodies through pregnancy unless it is unless they have their own undeniable proof as in they've gone through it themselves and even then they still kind of dismiss it so I, I don't know and to to bring it back to the idea of athletes as employees then you have to look at the whole thing of well are they considered full-time employees <laughs> are, you know they're contract they're contractors they're considered maybe freelancers and you know contracted people and freelancers don't have the same type of rights as full-time employees typically in the workplace so then you got to dig into those kinds of issues as well to look at how do organizations how do companies provide for all of their employees fairly, even when those employees are on different structural levels within the company. And it gets a little messy. Yeah. I think the conclusion is the system is rigged. <laughs> uh, everything is a scam. Evergreen <laughs> conclusion. Listeners, let us know what you thought of the article and the video. If you watched it or read it, it was really good. I highly recommend it. The title is Nike Told Me to Dream Crazy Until I Wanted a Baby. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right. Mom Jean Movies. Wine Country (laughs) is a new Netflix film. It opened in theaters earlier this month. It's currently streaming on the site. It's the first feature film directed by Amy Poehler. Nicole, give us a rundown. Okay. So... The term mom jeans comes from a Saturday Night Live sketch from 2003, which actually stars all the people who are in wine country. That's Amy Poehler, Rachel Dratch, Tina Fey, and Maya Rudolph. And, you know, they're kind of parroting the high-waisted jeans of suburban moms and their polo shirts and the belts and, you know, the little pooch that a lot of people get after pregnancy that doesn't go away. And that high-waisted um, but- jeans really emphasize... Yeah, (laughs) right. So 
wine country and movies like Palms and Book Club, all these mom jean movies, right, are films that are kind of targeted toward that same demographic of white middle to upper middle class suburban mothers who use a nice glass of wine as their coping mechanism for all the stress <laughs> that they're um, dealing with. <laughs> so but we're going to focus on wine country today, which... Um, is an aggressively fine movie. I thought <laughs> it was it was okay. You know, it was a fine, cute little movie to watch, but I don't necessarily see myself revisiting it except for like research purposes or something. I'd be really curious to know what you'd be researching that would require you to revisit this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. <laughs> I would say that my review is much the same. Aggressively fine is a really good way to put it. I think mom jean movies are like the new chick flicks, which is kind of like taking a little dig at the people who enjoy them, you know, in the same way that people, you know, refer to romance novels still as bodice rippers, even though no one talks about them in that way. But it's still, you know, it's trying to point out that the people who enjoy these kinds of films, oh, there's something less than with them. And, you know, it's okay if you just want something kind of safe and I don't want to say bland, but, you know, just kind of. Eh, it's a good movie, I guess. <laughs> so I watched this. I was on vacation last week, and it was a place with no TV. <laughs> but luckily, we had a laptop and streaming. So I, I watched this movie, and I think three three things were happening at the same time. I think you're right, Nicole. It's these movies that kind of poke fun at their target audience. And at the same time, I think that they were trying to make a movie that validates women who are in their late 40s, early 50s, right? Like that it is so hard to see women of that age represented in film and that this was a kind of, you know, like we are going to be slightly transgressive in showing, you know, people who are over 26 on a, on film, which I think actually is important. Um, but the movie wasn't that good. It had a lot of funny people in it. But I think in trying to kind of make a statement about women and aging and then try to be this movie about female friendships and like what happens to you at certain points in your life. Um, it kind of fell flat. But one of the running themes in the movie that I thought was interesting is this idea of the complexity of women's group friendships, that sometimes women's friendships can be very close, but still guarded in their ability to kind of be transparent when things are going tough or hmm. be really clear about conflict, right? Like some of it is about a kind of conflict avoidance among these women about being honest with each other. And so there were these glimpses of it. I was like, okay. And I also felt very like indicted because I had gone to wine, um, like a wine <laughs> birthday party for my friend for her 40th oh. <laughs> recently. And I was like, oh, am I at that age where like I go with girlfriends to like, Sonoma and drink wine. Yes, yes, I am. But there was like, did you see yourself reflected in the movie? <laughs> well, I when I when I turned it on, I was like, wait a second, no, I'm much cooler than these people. But yeah, it's like, <laughs> but are you? But, but no, am just I, kidding. Right? Of course you no, are. Of were, course you they, are. But there were glimpses of this film, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> a little too, a little too real. You know those <laughs> those those dynamics from the past that you don't know what to do with in the present, and then I think. Part of the theme of this movie is the things that women deny themselves or are unable to access because of the responsibilities of family, of partners, of work, and that, you know, sometimes 
drinking or sometimes the like occasional girls trip becomes this place where everyone kind of vomits out all of the things that they needed to. And that part I was like, uh, kind of real, but I don't like. Um, so maybe the movie was just fine and I need to reevaluate my own life. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of, my big beef with the movie was that I felt like there were too many characters yes. such that like none of them ever became anything other than a collection of characteristics like and not even really a collection of characteristics just like one hyper visible characteristics that was like the very loud and obvious engine behind every single thing that that character does and I I find that this is true of a lot of sort of ensemble comedies but this one in particular I felt like they could have deleted one or two of the characters but you know there's always like the type a one the you know awkward one the high-powered job one and it it felt predictable in a way that I didn't expect from a movie with so many comedians that I love. But one thing that I took from the article that coined the term mom gene movies, it was a piece from Alison Herman at The Ringer. She notes, and this seems really important to me, that Hollywood doesn't often differentiate between women in, let's say, their late 40s and women in, let's say, their late 60s. It's just like, all women over 45 are like dealing with menopause and like failing bodies and wrinkles and like, you know, love to drink wine. And 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 all the movies about them are sort of like getting the band back together as if none of these women just have normal like groups of friends in their everyday lives. It's always like a reunion of sorts. So in that sense, I felt like, oh, perhaps for women of that extremely broad age bracket who are dealing with very different life situations at either end of it, you know, perhaps it is good to see some of the concerns about aging laughed about but also taken seriously on screen. And maybe for younger women like myself, it will help me envision my life at age 50 or 60 where like, oh, I'll still have friends and have fun. I'm not going to just drop off the face of the earth or be completely irrelevant if I'm not somebody's mother or grandmother. <laughs> uh, one of the things that frustrated me about this movie and movies like it is that it just seems like these reunion movies are an excuse to play your nostalgic playlist. So there are all yeah. these songs that are like, hey, don't you remember this song when we were teens and had no trouble? Or, you know, which is great, but not when it's every 10 minutes, you know, so there are. They were playing music on the bus that they were using to get around Napa that Jason Schwartzman was driving, who is adorable, and I love him to pieces. I was um, going to ask, as then, our resident, like, thirsty, thirsty <laughs> kid member, what you thought of the, like, sexual interest in the film. Okay, I'm going to come back to that because I do have thoughts on that. <laughs> okay, um, sorry. So there's, yeah, that's okay. There are all these, you know, they, you know, everyone was like taking turns as a DJ. And then there was a moment when they're back at the house and they're playing music to get drunk to. And then there's just, you know, the music is fine. It's great. But it also just felt like they were forcing a soundtrack on us in a way that felt unnatural. So I kind of resented that. All right. Um, now tell us oh, what but you the thought thirst. of yeah, Jason, yeah. Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> okay, like I said, I love him. He's adorable. Clearly, you know, it was very predictable that somebody was in the house was going to end up sleeping with him. Mm -hmm. And I felt a little shortchanged that we did not get the scene of it. Not just because I love Jason, but also it would have just been a, just a really good opportunity to, to show 
yes, women over 40 are sexual beings and they enjoy sex. They know what they want and they go for it, you know, and the opportunity I don't know, it was right there and it was kind of like lost. But there was a queer couple uh, or the start of a queer couple, I guess I should say, with so Paula Pell's character um, was a lesbian woman, and there was like a little something happening with her and another character in the film. So we had that element, but again, there was still no like nobody kissed, or we didn't see yeah. anybody kiss. And I am like, I want to see somebody kiss, <laughs> and I know that's just me as you know the thirst correspondent, and maybe that's all coming <laughs> out, but. Um, <laughs> But that's also a part of being over 40 because that's something that me and my friends talk about or my friends and I talk about that are over 40 or even just over 35 in the way that our sex drives change and, you know, the whole women in their prime thing past 35. I don't even know, like, the if there's, like, a medical term for it or whatever. It's just, (laughs) you know, urban lore at this point. But it seems very real to me and to my friends. And it would have been great to see that highlighted in this film. And it was not. And I'm yeah, disappointed. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I I mean, the the thing, I, I won't spoil it, but yeah, one of the characters does hook up with Jason Schwartzman. And it goes right from him saying, like, hey, do you want to have sex? And her kind of saying, sure, to them waking up and she's got her CPAP machine on. I'm like, oh, haha! Another <laughs> joke about how you're, you know, 50, and so you need you have sleep apnea. But what about that part where you're actually like lusting after this guy? And and it also, I I find that that relates to a criticism that I read in the New York Times and uh, Manola Dargis's review, where she notes, and I actually didn't notice this, but she says there was some visible digital retouching on the actresses' faces. She said it turned their faces into distracting smears. I wasn't distracted by it, but I know that this is something that a ton of movie studios do, which is use, you know, computer retouching effects to take away blemishes or wrinkles or whatever, and that's why everyone looks so perfect on screen. And that, to me, seems like a little bit antithetical to whatever this movie was trying to do in terms of humanizing women who are over 45. And it might have been more visible to her because she saw it on a big screen. But for me watching on my laptop or whatever, I didn't notice. But that does, it disturbs me a little that they would do that on this film. Yeah, I watched it. I watched it on my TV and I did notice that there was something uh, that I thought was a little off with their faces. But again, I wasn't sure if it was just my television or or what that that is disappointing as well that you know we have this film that's trying to celebrate women and celebrate women's friendship but also still fall in line with the idea that you know you're still gonna look smooth you still have to look this particular way when you get older even though they you know they had different body shapes and sizes which was great um but it's still just kind of like you know you still have to be pretty in a certain particular in a certain way All right, listeners, if you watch Wine Country or if you've seen any other of these mom gene movies, email us your thoughts at thewavesatslate.com. All right, recommendations. What do you guys have? Okay. In the spirit of the excellent book, The Queen, I recommend Annalise Orlick's Storming Caesar's Palace, How Black Mothers Fought Their Own War on Poverty. It's a book from 2006 from Beacon Press that talks about the National Welfare Rights Organization and the very first and only protest on 
Las Vegas's strip in which a group of women who were fighting for welfare rights did an eat-in at Caesar's Palace in which they brought children and families that were struggling with food access and nutrition into a Las Vegas buffet. They ate up a bunch of food to highlight the problems of welfare benefits in the state and the nation. And so this book tells a really deep and wonderful story about the women who fought for people who were living in poverty and helped start a movement to really fight some of the negative stereotypes that came out of the era of the welfare queen. Wow, that sounds like an awesome protest. Such a good book. I am recommending a TV show that it premieres on May 31st. I've been watching some screeners of it. It's called Good Omens. It's an Amazon and BBC production. It's an adaptation of the 1990 novel by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Which I read that book. I thought it was funny. It's very like British humor uh, type of story. Um, It's about an angel and a demon who have become something like friends over the years. Uh, And so the, the story takes place around the bureaucracies of heaven and hell trying to prepare for Armageddon. And, you know, the the characters that populate both of these sort of supernatural realms are very idiosyncratic and have all of the same, you know, inter or intra bureaucracy squabblings that you might find in any normal uh, mortal workplace. And, you know, the, the sort of central conflict of it is that during the handoff of the spawn of Satan to a family that was supposed to be going to the Middle East, where Armageddon would um, begin when the child is 11 years old, the baby got given to the wrong family. You know, one of those typical, like, baby swap disasters. And so the actual child of Satan is just having a normal, happy British childhood. And then heaven and hell are trying to figure out what to do with it. So the show is very charming, very British, because the BBC. And it's very funny because Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett are funny. And the characters, the acting is very sort of wry and enjoyable. There's the production design is really fun to watch. Um, And it treats both sort of theology and religious dogma with this extreme irreverence and irony that I find quite enjoyable. So it premieres on May 31st. It's called Good Omens. Watch it. Um, And I am recommending Fleabag, which (sighs) is a show on Amazon Prime. I've been meaning to watch that. Starring, you have to watch it immediately. (laughs) It stars Phoebe Waller-Bridge as the titular Fleabag character. And it is about this woman who... She uses sex to deal with a lot of the challenges that are going on in her life. And she levels up breaking the fourth wall beyond the office and parks and rec kind of thing that we've gotten used to with, you know, characters talking to us. But it's it's so good. Um, it kind of it's kind of like the audience is her friend hmm. um, when she breaks the fourth wall and, and looks at us. Yeah, th- I, I guess I could say that. And the second and final season just released on Amazon Prime all at once because Phoebe Waller-Bridge is also one of the, I think she is the creator and executive producer of Killing Eve. And she's got a, other, a lot of other projects going on. So I think she's you know moving on from Fleabag itself. But you have to watch it. I love this show so much because we look at the way that she 
goes through the different, they say love interests, but they're not love interests really in the first season. But the second season is phenomenal and I cannot stop thinking about it. But the characters, most of the characters don't have names. They're just referred to as um like, you know, there's this guy that she picked up on the bus and he's called Bus Rodent because he, <laughs> he's he got uh, an overbite that makes him look like a rat. Um, and I love that because that's what I do with my girlfriends when we're talking about the people that we hook up with or the people that we're starting dating before they get close enough that they're that we call them by their names we give them little code names right um so i it's just it's such a really interesting slice slice of her life and we look we get to see fleabag's family with her sister stepmother um her sister's husband who is awful and um it's just I don't, I don't, I'm so effusive about it. And I realize I'm not saying exactly what it is about because I don't want to ruin too much. But the second season was incredible. And in light of the recent ending of Game of Thrones, I think people should watch Fleabag so that you can see how a series can end and have a satisfying ending, even if you don't necessarily like the ending. That's a really good teaser for our uh, Slate Plus segment. Yeah, that show (laughs) sounds amazing. I've heard it recommended from so many people. I should really watch it. And maybe we should discuss on the show. Yes. All right. That's our show for the week. Thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. For Marsha Chatlin and Nicole Perkins, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.